So in our, in our series right now, we're doing something kind of unique in terms of what we're doing at GCF the first two months, where typically we kind of pick a book and we go through it. What we're looking at as we're new to campus or uh, even just new for this semester is we're looking at areas of our life, which we often compartmentalize as being outside of uh, matters of faith or irrelevant to matters of faith. And what we want to do is we want to take these issues and we want to examine them in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the truth is, is whether you're Christian or whether you're not, our minds are built in such a way where we attempt to make sense of things by building structures. We're thinking, we're scheming, and we're making sense of what it is we're taking. We all operate inside of a worldview, whether we realize it or not. However, because Christianity is a system of belief given to us by the creator of the world, it's the Christian worldview which best explains why it is we're here, what went wrong, and what it is that makes us whole again. And so if I were to be super trendy, which I guess because I'm saying it, I am trendy, um, I would call this week hashtag, what's the super low-key hashtag? It's the, it's the high-key, two-handed, hashtag relationship goals. And next week would be hashtag squad goals. Um, and that's because uh, next week we're going to poke around the issue of community and friendships. Why is it that we have these desires, whether it's physically or on a digital community for these friendship relationships? But this week we are going to examine our desires for intimacy and inside of a romantic relationship, inside of dating and marriage. One could say that marriage is what brings us together today. Um, a few Princess Bride fans out there. Uh, and the reason why we can joke about things like hashtag relationship goals uh, is because it's pervasive, right? Inside of our culture, whether we're single or not, whether we're male or female, extrovert or introvert, we all have longings for some sort of relational unity. Some of us have stronger longings than others. Some of us have more subtle ones. But why is it, do you think, that we all have this? Why is it that in chick flicks or in our dreams or even just as we're sitting in class daydreaming that oftentimes it involves a relationship with the opposite sex? One sociologist, uh, his name was Mark Ragerness, he put out a bunch of findings based off a comprehensive survey in the U.S. regarding relationships, dating, and sex in America. And what he saw, just statistically, is that marriage rates are declining and yet, in talking to individuals, the desire for relationships and intimacy are not declining. And so what's, what's going on that marriage is declining, but our appetite for, for relationships is not? And taking this data, he highlighted this issue, what he called a lack of marriageability, specifically in men, which narrowed the dating pool. And what he did is he, he saw it as this plane, and there are two poles, and there's a middle. And so he began to kind of attempt to, to bring hypotheses, hypotheses, hypothesis, hypothesis, hypotheses, hypotheses, um, to his, his data. And on one end, there was, uh, on both of the ends of the spectrum, that's where the majority of the population was. In the middle was a sparsely populated kind of view of dating and relationships. And on one side of the spectrum were those who saw dating as a social status indicator. These are men and women who are generally pickier about who it is they want to pursue a relationship with because that, that significant other is kind of a social icon or status symbol 
for who you are and what it is you're doing in life. And this was especially true for women, because in a time where um, the identity and value of a woman is seen in her ability to compete and be successful in a male-dominated sphere of business, it's now less attractive for them to date men who are less motivated or less successful in terms of social standing. And so these women and men of similar discernment don't see relationships as intrinsically helpful or beneficial. They see it as something which is good if it adds to my social standing, but it's not really essential to what it is they want to accomplish in their life. So that's one pull, is the, the idea of relationships as something which brings a level of credibility socially to you. On the other side of the pull was those who saw relationships as only valuable in regards to sex. This pull was typified by the modern man. And the rise of pornography and to an extent, the degree of hesitation for women to enter into long-term relationships, it increases encounters with casual sex. And so that means that men in general, in today's world, are having more success in the area of sex-only relationships. They are experiencing the rewards of a relationship without ever having to put in the effort of it. Therefore, men are less motivated motivated to put in the effort, motivated to spend the time and relational capital to steward a relationship because our culture has become a sort of vending machine for sexual encounters physically and digitally. And in the middle, so those are the two poles. In the middle is a smaller group of people who do view relationships as a doorway to marriage. Now, having looked at those two poles and those two options, why is it that we choose to see relationships? in that smaller, less populated middle center? Why is it that we would choose to desire long-term relationships when we can find satisfaction in our careers or in casual sex? Why should we date? What is the best possible conclusion or end game for a relationship between a male and a female? These are all important questions but the truth is, is, because no one has to be taught to have these feelings, because our innate longing for this intimacy is so strong, we often don't question it. We just act, and we respond, and we react, but we're not truly thoughtful about it. And I'm assuming that most of you in here are Christian, or at least have been raised with some sort of Christian background, but I've always been shocked, even in campus ministry, how frequent it is for people who consider themselves Christians to go into a dating relationship completely unaware of the spiritual state of who it is you're dating. It's not on their radar. That happens more times than I'd ever be aware of. But even more so, it's more common for that individual to say, well, I know I'm dating a Christian. That's great. But then their relationship inside of that becomes disconnected from God's glory and God's plan for their relationship. And that's true in terms of how they view their relationship and how they view their singleness. It becomes disconnected and, and something which is tertiary or, or not important to what it is that God has actually called us to be. But this can't be so. Because if we're all operating inside of a worldview, if we're all making value decisions, if we're thoughtless with it, that means that our best case scenario is that we're aimless and we accidentally hit something or that we find something and it's simply empty. But as I mentioned last week, what we're going to do is we're going to take each of these desires and we're going to ask three questions of it. We're asked how the Bible explains our desire for it, how the gospel renews our desire for it, and how the church embodies our desires for it. So let me just pray real quick, and then we'll start with our first question. Lord, um, there's really not many things more human 
than our desire for relationships, be it in friendship or be it with a significant other in a romantic context. Um, It's the way you've wired us to be. But Lord, I pray that you help us to think properly about who we are by first understanding who Jesus is and what he's done for us. That we might frame all of our affections and all of our longings in light of the gospel which saves us for eternity. So Lord, I pray that uh, in this room, these students and these, uh, these men and women will be influencers on their campus because they know what relationships are meant to be in the context of the gospel. So we love you, Lord. We thank you for this gift you've given us, but we pray you help us to understand it rightly. Uh, We pray this in your name. Amen. So, question one. How does the Bible explain our desires for relationships and dating? How does the Bible say we got to where we are? So we turn again to the beginning, right? The book of Genesis. We looked at this last week, and we're going to look at it again next week. And uh, in Genesis, we get a glimpse into the reality of why God made us. I said last week, Genesis isn't simply a story of how God made. More importantly, it's a story of why God made us. It shows an ideal creation inside of a perfect relationship with God. And so we're going to pick up, if you have your Bibles, it'll be on the screen too. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, which starts with this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So I want to pause here. We're going to keep plowing along in Genesis 2, but I want to stop here and point out that at this point, it is only man who had been created. Okay, The creation of woman is coming here in the next few verses, and here we see the task that man was given. Right, We looked at that last week, to expand the garden. And it wasn't just that God loves gardeners, but as the garden was expanded, so was the sphere in which we could experience God. So was the amount of livable space that people could come and live in the midst of God. So man is to keep the garden And we see here also man is to obey God. So what is the first task of man? The first task of man is to glorify and obey God through his work. To obey God and to glorify him in everything that he's doing. So now let's continue uh, beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field, and every bird of the heaven, and brought to them to the man to see what he would call them. I like that line. Like, God's going to see what he's going to call them. Like, here's a weird-looking thing. What's that? He's like, the sloth. Um, and just making, just, well, I don't know why God put that in there, but he wanted us to know that. Um, that was the sidebar. I should stick to my notes. Um, and whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. He, obviously, Adam spoke in English at that time, which is where these names came from. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife 
and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So here we see Genesis 1 gives us this big overview of God's creation. Genesis 2 kind of gives us the storyline of it. And here what we just saw was the creation of Eve. And there's a lot to look at in this text, but I want to point out three assumptions that this text we looked at makes about relationships between males and females. And in looking at these assumptions, what we're going to see is we're going to see strands that go all the way to our hearts today that begin to explain why we have these longings in our hearts. And our first two implications are in Genesis 2.20, which says this, The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So first, we see that relational intimacy between humans was part of God's design. Relational intimacy between humans is part of God's design. God surveyed his whole creation right before this. He said, I looked at all the animals, I looked at all the birds, I looked at all the plants, and there wasn't a helper fit for Adam. No animal, no plant, not even simply another man could provide the relational unity which man needed. And we're going to discuss the implications of this a little more next week when we look at our longings for community in general. So, but the first thing is the intimacy with another human is the way God made us. It's what God designed for us. The second implication that we can pull from this is that the role of Eve in the context of Genesis 2 was to be Adam's helper. Now maybe you hear that word helper and it's abrasive to you, but remember what it was that Adam was tasked to do, right? Look back at Genesis 1, the first part of 28 where God says this. So again, this is back to the summary chapter. That's why it's them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply fill the earth, and subdue it. And then also look at what we just started with in Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. So God tasked Adam, not with a menial task, not with something unimportant, not with something that was small and insignificant, but he tasked Adam with working, subduing, and filling the earth to the glory of God. Filling the earth and expanding the sphere of God's glory and salvation. And in the context of the first marriage here, Eve's role was to glorify God by helping Adam in relationship, in childbirth, and in worship. Okay, Those are the three things that we saw Adam was tasked to do that now Eve came to help with. And to, to hold this together, let's look at our third implication here in Genesis 2, 23 through 25. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, so this is kind of a cool thing. This is where the Bible's great. This is the first aspect of um, poetry in the human language. And it's when the man meets a woman. Isn't that cool? <laughs> like we, we, we associate poetry with love in our culture. And here it is, man meets woman and man speaks poetically. I just think that's really cool. He says this, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. So the implication here is this. Okay, we saw that God made man with a relational capacity, saw that God made Eve as a helper to help man with the task of filling, subduing, and glorifying him. 
But here we see the description of marriage. And this shows that the ultimate relationship between humans is between a husband and a wife in marriage. This means that the context of what's going on is important. It's true that Eve is the first woman, but it's also true that Eve is the first wife. She's the first spouse. And here specifically, she exists not only to complete Adam emotionally, but to to help Adam through marriage glorify God. And so if Adam and Eve are a model for a sinless husband and a wife, what it is to look like, it looks like this. It looks like a man and a woman. So this is before sin. So we want a window at what ultimate marriage looks like without sin. It's a man and a woman living rightly with God in his presence at peace with one another for the service of God's glory. All of the relational intimacy between man and woman, all of the relational intimacy between God and man, all for the purpose of serving God by expanding his glory. The whole relationship was bound up in honoring God through worship, relationship, and labor. So here's the summary. Man was made for a capacity for human relationships, and marriage was made so that man and woman could enter into a unique yet distinct relationship for the glory of God through the expansion of his kingdom. Man was made with a capacity for relationships, and marriage was made so that man and woman could enter into a distinct and unique relationship, which they could not be on their own, through the expansion of God's kingdom. So why do we all have universal longings for relationships? Where do we see the origin story? Because God made us that way. Why is it we desire sexual intimacy? Because God wired man to desire a woman and for woman to desire a man. Why is it that we look at the marriageability of our spouse in terms of what it is that they can help us achieve in terms of accomplishments? Because God created man and woman in marriage to do something. Marriage had a goal. It wasn't a static existence, but it served a purpose inside of God's plan. So creation explains our desires for sin, but it's, or <laughs> creation explains our desires for relationships, but sin explains the perversion of our desires. It explains how desires for sex and partnership and success go from um, ordinate desires, desires ordained by God, to inordinate desires that become sinful. And in Genesis 3, I'm not going to look at the, the, the story. You guys know the story. But what we see is we see the serpent approaching both Adam and Eve. But he spoke to Eve while Adam remained silent. The serpent attempted to deceive Eve while Adam stood by passively and did not protect her, did not interject, and did not help her to serve God. And instead, he chose to let her be deceived and then to eat with her. In this sin, they actively disobeyed God through the eating. But more importantly, they actively rejected God as their ruler in their life. We had just read that God said, do not eat from this tree or in that day you will surely die. And yet they heard the warning, they understood the command, but they believed the serpent instead of God. And this is where we begin to see the implications of what it is we experience today. Look at what happens immediately after they ate the apple in Genesis 3, verses 6 through 13. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to her eyes that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together 
and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. So there we see the first real perversion of a relationship. Adam and Eve were never afraid of God until sin was there. And now they fear the God who they once had intimacy with. So I hid myself, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He, that's God, said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave me to be with, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. So here we actually see three images or three relationships which were shattered in the fall. First, we saw that intimacy became distorted, right? We had just read Genesis 2, 25. They were both naked and not ashamed. But the moment that sin came into the world, the very first thing they did is they realized their nakedness and they attempted to cover themselves. When sin came, the raw intimacy of their exposure to one another caused them to want to hide themselves. Even in the context of marriage, they became, more, they became more comfortable with themselves than with their spouse. They felt most at ease in themselves instead of a shared relationship with somebody else. So that was the first thing. Intimacy was distorted. The second thing we saw is that relationships became weaponized. What was beautiful, what was safe, what was loving became a dagger that Adam used. So God shows up, he's walking in the cool of the day and the way they say it, it's just like this was an ordinary thing. God walked with Adam and Eve, he dwelled with them in the cool of the day and he shows up and they're not there. And God says, God knows where they are, but he asks them, where are you? And he speaks specifically to Adam. Because if you remember, Adam was made first. Adam was given the specific command. God had given Adam an aspect of responsibility. Both were created equally, but both had different roles inside of the way God created. And so he gave Adam to lead and Eve to help. And so God came to Adam because Adam had this delegated responsibility to care for those whom God had given him. And the first thing Adam did is he weaponized that responsibility against Eve. God speaks to Adam And he says, you, oh man, what happened? And Adam takes that responsibility and says, she did it. She made me do it. And so the responsibility and the care that was meant to cause Adam to lead his wife into flourishing before God gave way to self-service and blame shifting. And from this point on, man would abuse his gifts to the detriment of the woman and the woman would misuse her gifts to the detriment of the man. And lastly, we see in the curses that God gives, if you kept reading in Genesis 14, or 3, 14 and following, that God gives a man a curse and a woman a curse, and what happens is their united cause to glorify God is clouded, it's confused. They begin to not understand how they work together, 
man begins to lord over her in an oppressive way. Woman begins to desire to be in the position that man is in, and this restlessness begins to war in the hearts of both male and female. And this explains the confusion and the sensitive topic we have around gender roles, sexual relationships, and same-sex attraction. We don't know how to think about ourselves rightly. We don't know how to think about sexuality rightly. We don't know how to think about others rightly because sin has disconnected who we are from who God made us to be. And the whole of our relationships are distorted and corrupted by sin. What was meant to be, what is, and what we're tasked to do is shrouded in the devastation of disobeying God and losing that relationship. So this explains, in one sense, how, why things are the way they are. But the good news of the gospel is that the gospel promises redemption. It brings us back to what God created us for. And this is the second question today. How does the gospel renew our desire for relationships and dating? So I've worked, uh, this August was 10 years on staff at Sovereign Hope Church. I've worked with students, both high school and college that entire time. And the number one question, if a student comes up to me and asks to meet with me, nine times out of 10, it's about relationships. It's about, I have this desire to date, uh, she likes me. It's like this junior high gossip mill and it goes all the way um, up. And what do I do? What does she do? Uh, I feel like our relationship isn't working out. All these relational things come to me. And the number one question I ask students when they come to me with dating is why? Why is it that you want to date so-and-so? And not only why do you want to date, but why do you want to date this person? Why dating over just friendship? You see, these are questions that we can't answer unless we understand the point and the purpose of why God has called us to date. Why is it that you would answer that you're dating your significant other? That you have a desire for that crush in chemistry class? Why is it that you think that God has put a romantic attraction in the hearts of humans? You see, for us to understand this, we have to look first at the ultimate picture, a very key passage in Ephesians 5. Uh, part of it is what Johnny just read for us before we began. But let's look, and I want you to hear the language that's being used in Ephesians 5, 22 through 32. And I, what I want you to hear, and we'll look at it together, but I want you to hear the renewal and redemption of the relationship between males and females. Wives, submit to your, your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she may be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Okay, the direct quote from what we looked at just in Genesis. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers 
to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects the husband. So we're going to spend some time looking at implications in this text, but the first thing I want us to see in this is the most important truth we're going to take from this passage right now. And we saw Paul quote word for word that passage in Genesis where uh, man will leave his father and mother and the two will become one flesh. And look at what he says immediately after it in verse 32. This mystery, so this mystery of this union, of this marriage, is profound And I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. The mystery of marriage refers to Christ and the church. So we're in college, so I'm going to drop some collegiate words on us here. Adam and Eve were the OG, okay? They were the original man, the original woman. They were the first husband and the first wife. They were the first married couple in all of human history. They give us a glimpse into the origin and the purpose of marriage, yet, so this is where our real college word comes in, yet that marriage in God's perfect plan was meant to be penultimate to another marriage. So that word penultimate means almost ultimate. It's the last thing before the final thing, the, the, the second to last, the thing which is next to the most perfect thing. And so that means if what Paul is saying in Ephesians is true, and it is, then when God created, so go all the way back to whenever creation was of Adam and Eve, and even go back further to before God created, when God was in the Trinity and they were deciding this perfect creation that was going to be made, when they envisioned man being joined to woman in the context of marriage, he created that as a shadow of the way in which God wanted to unite believers to his son, the marriage of Jesus and the church. You see, we cannot understand relationships if we do not understand the gospel because relationships were made to point to the gospel, right? It's not cute and coincidental that Jesus loves us and we love our spouses. God made us to love our spouses so that we can greater understand the way in which Jesus loved the church. You see, Jesus is the ultimate groom and the church that is believers through faith are the ultimate bride. So, to answer the question of why we want to date, biblically, is actually to be forced to answer the question of why is it that I should get married? You should think of issues about dating outside of marriage is to clamor for a window seat in an airplane because you love plexiglass, right? No one fights for the window seat in an airplane because they love windows. Man, I just love windows. Like we, we, we remodeled our house. My wife's like, I want a window here. I want a window here. And it's not that she loves windows, right? We don't have windows hanging on sheetrock walls. What we love is what the window allows us to see right? And so when we talk about dating, dating is only beautiful, only meaningful, only helpful if we view dating as the lens through which it allows us to see marriage. To start dating without being willing to consider marriage is a disservice to you and to the person you're potentially interested in. 
And that's because all questions about dating, about marriage, are all questions about love. Yet, if the Bible defines true love, if the God of all language says that love is most visibly seen in Christ in the church. That means if our starting point to love anybody else is less than the gospel, if you don't know the gospel, if they don't know the gospel, you will never have true love. Culture can try to define true love, but God already did. God created language, God created our hearts, so we could, we could deceive ourselves and say that we're loving one another because it meets culture standards, but it's not. Culture doesn't have higher standards for love. It has lower standards of love that we are blinded to. True love is a perfect savior who laid aside his privilege in order to serve his wife. True marriage is a husband who pursued a wife not because he fell in love, but because he chose to love. True intimacy is the son of God taking the punishment for his betrothed so that through that furnace he might make her his wife. You see, on the cross, Jesus took our rebellion so that we wouldn't have to. On the cross, Jesus pursued a relationally unfaithful people, people who were born denying his goodness. He pursued a people who were his enemy, but his death turns us into his lovers. And in understanding what Jesus did for the church, we become converted. That's the word we use to show the massive change that comes. We become converted to see faith in the gospel and its implications in all areas of our life. Before we ever look at someone else in terms of what their relationship provides us, we must look at the way in which Jesus fixed our brokenness relationally towards God. Because before woman was ever around, before there was ever a flirty glance, God made us to find ultimate joy in himself. So to have Eve without having God is to lack everything. You see, we see that it's a restoration to God through Jesus which gives us ultimate identity. So when we begin to move forward with ideas of dating, with the goal of seeing through to the marriage ability of our spouse, we begin to, to know that a spouse or a girlfriend or a boyfriend is never going to be what satisfies us. It's not. You see, what's, what's interesting is Adam didn't say, it's not good that I'm alone. It was God. God said, I'm going to give you, Adam had no lack. Adam wasn't sitting in the garden being like, well, that tiger's stupid. I wish I had someone to share that with. It was, it was God who graciously gave him something. Adam was completely and would have been totally satisfied had God not provided. And yet we often make the woman or the man that we have affection for a God into our own life. You see, it's through Jesus's pursuit of the church and his desire to care for her and to present the church as pure that we begin to place as a first importance the most important truth that the Bible says about our romantic relationships. And that is this. What does this mean about the most important question we consider when we begin to have feelings of affection towards someone else? It's this, if what Jesus did for the church is true, if that's what's ultimate, if that's what satisfies, this is the number one question you must answer in terms of your relationships, and that is this. 
is my romantic relationship, okay? Not just is my friendship. If it's just friendship, great, don't date them. But is my romantic relationship with this person something which will help them to kill sin and to love Jesus more? And the flip side of that is, is this person in a position to help me kill sin and love Christ more? And if initially the answer is no, then don't do it. But also, sometimes we don't know. And that's why we date. That's why we go sit by the window. That's why we do it wisely, okay? We want to see what's there, okay? Christians who date for like 16 years, what are you doing with your life? What is it you're looking at, okay? And yet, if we, I've lost my train of thought. I don't know where. And yet, where am I in my notes? Oh, this is what I was going to say. To find out in dating at any point, the very first thing Sarah and I, uh, so, well, not the very first thing. There's a long story. Sarah and I have, we, we call it the age we do not speak of. Um, there's a month gap, month to two months, two month gap uh, that is uh, bad times. And then we had what I call the date of reconciliation. Uh, and on that, we're both really intentional. We said, we want to be quick to say we should break up because it's not worth it otherwise. If we see reasons in our lives that show that we would not help each other love Jesus more, we want to turn around and find somebody who will. And that was, I, I could tell you that was God's immeasurable grace to me because I didn't have things figured out. God was so kind in even convicting me and Sarah of that at that point. And I hope that that kindness serves you. But if we realize those things in dating, or if we realize those things before we start dating, then it would be so foolish to move forward and call that love when that love could never match what Christ did for his church. Jesus did not lord his position over us as God for his own selfish pleasure because it made him feel good. Instead, he chose to humbly serve us by loving us into a greater relationship with God even by laying down his life for us. So if our ideas for relationships begin anywhere except how we are to help people worship God as an accelerant to worship instead of a hurdle for it, then we're not actually pursuing love. What we're pursuing is our own selfish uh, uh, desires, our own ability to be satisfied. And here's the truth, is relationships which do not glorify God will never satisfy people made in the image of God. It won't. Jesus restores our idea of marriage by pointing us to the gospel. Jesus restores our idea of intimacy by pointing us back to God and the relationship that he restored. Jesus restores our idea of love by bathing it in the glory of God as the chief good of man. So is Christianity relevant to relationships and dating? Yes, because it's only Christianity which understands true love in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The marriage of Christ in the church is why we have marriage. And God is so good that he's given it as a common grace to people, right? There are non-believers where we could grab onto that affection they have for their spouse and we could say that amazing depth of love is not ultimate. There is something better. 
This is the last question we then need to ask, is how does the church embody? How do we live out this idea of what relationships were and how Jesus changes it? And there's two ways. They're gonna be short, I hope. The first, and I'm gonna repeat this because it's a little wordy, the first is this, is that we intentionally wish to make explicit what our relationships make implicit, okay? We wish to make explicit, that is visible or observable, clear what our relationships naturally say to be true. And that's this, that intimacy between a husband and wife or boyfriend and girlfriend is not the ultimate source of satisfaction or salvation. It is not the chief need of humanity. See, there is something better than marriage. There is something better than sex, and that is salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is something better than intimacy between a husband and a wife, and that is communion with the God of the universe. And there is something greater than mere social status, and it is the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ, the husband, laying down his life for the bride so that the bride can be free. You see, I saw a celebrity Christian um, on Twitter after he got married, and his tweet was just boasting about how he has had sex now. That was the tweet. Got married, have sex, yeah! And in a sense, I know what he's trying to do. He's trying to push back culturally against this idea that Christians are prudish about sex, that we don't like sex, um, and that this is like, hey, we should talk about this. And I agree, but you're not helping. (laughs) And here's why. Let me explain, okay? He's not helping in doing this because actually what he's doing is he's taking issues like singleness, he's taking issues like virginity, and he's showing them to be a stumbling block from which we need to be redeemed. Right? He shows it as something which needs to be left behind and cut out of our lives. And it is true that the closer we grow romantically with our, our boyfriend or our girlfriend and then eventually with our, our, our husband or our wife is beautiful and God has made it. and He's made it for our good and for our enjoyment. But to make that ultimate is not helpful to anyone, even if it's for the sake of trying to break uh, presuppositions. You see, I wonder how celebrations like that are perceived by people in our church who feel called to singleness. I wonder even more so how celebrations like that, what is it that it communicates to those brothers and sisters in Christ who wrestle with same-sex attraction who know that they will never be able to, so long as they are willing to fight, they'll never be able to satisfy those perverted sexual longings that are traces of sin. Because if we're not careful about what it is we emphasize in marriage, if we take up culture's idea of sex as the chief expression of love and the thing which satisfies us, then it will be easy to communicate around us that they will never find true joy, true satisfaction, or true meaning unless they're able to be sexually and relationally satisfied. But what if in our dating and in our marriages, 
it exists to show that even though sex and intimacy is wonderful, there is still something better and it's available to everyone. It's available to the men and to the women, to the young and to the old, to the single, to the dating, to the married, to the divorced. And that's salvation in Jesus Christ. That's a better message. Because that's not salvation through sex. That's not being made whole through intimacy. That's freedom through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we've experienced that, we can share that with people. So that's the first way. So we make explicit what the, the, the our marriages make implicit, and that's that it was never meant to satisfy, but it's a tool to point to the God who can. The second way we can embody relationships and dating is to see our role as Christ's bride. Okay? There is no category for single people in the Christian church. There's a bride of Christ. That's what you are inside of the church. Okay? Uh, the, the, in the garden, Adam was tasked to subdue the earth and Eve was tasked to help him with it. And in the cross, Jesus established himself as Lord over all things, putting all things under his feet, and Jesus has called his wife to help. We see this in Matthew 28, right? What does Jesus say? Look at this submission language that Jesus gives and then this help language that Jesus gives. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the ends of the earth. So how do we embody this? Well, here's, here's, here's it. Your primary role, if you are a believer, whether you're male or female, single, dating, or dreaming, is to help Jesus in his work by expanding his garden and inviting people to salvation. It's expanding the lordship of Christ by calling people to experience the husband that we have in Jesus. And if we see ourselves first and foremost as the bride of Christ, then we're free to serve him in our singleness because we're bound by that relationship. We've been satisfied, we've been repurposed, we've been consummated with Jesus, we've been converted and made new, and now that is the way in which we operate in our Dating thoughts, when we enter into dating, it's no different than when we enter into missions. When we enter into dating, it's no different than when we enter into evangelistic conversations because the whole goal of our interactions with people is to serve Jesus by calling others to see his beauty. We are called to serve Christ by worshiping him and helping others to do the same. And here's the thing. I believe that if the number of college students who are in here See, as their primary goal to experience love by loving Jesus and serving his glory than in our singleness and in our dating and in our marriages, we will show the world in beautiful, distinct ways. We'll show this campus through your singleness or through your dating the love of God, the service of others, and the glory of Jesus Christ we can make a distinction simply by realizing the way in which God has satisfied us relationally and letting that shift why we date and why we don't date. And I'm excited for that. To have a generation of students 
who prize in all things not relational intimacy or social status, but the gospel of Christ as the chief satisfying uh, need of humanity and the greatest solution for humanity. So I look forward to doing that together with you because you're going to ask me questions. It's going to come. It's part of college ministry. But I want to help you glorify God by dating well for his glory, for the good of your future spouse, and for the greater good of this campus. Let's pray. God, you have saved us. The only singleness that exists is singleness outside of God. And that is what you have saved us from. A life separated and severed from God is a life left to bear the punishment for our sins of rejection. But in Jesus, you have overcome the distance. In Jesus, you have robed us with righteousness. You have given yourself for us that you might present us holy and pure and spotless and without blemish. And it's only when we see the way in which you loved us and you invited us into relationship with you and the goal of presenting us as more mature and more lovely that we can even begin to structure the lives that we live rightly. And so what I pray It is a messy world in terms of relationships. There is so much confusion in terms of what it is that satisfies or what relationships looks like or what marriage is or how I'm supposed to act as man or woman. There's so much noise, but the clarity is the gospel which makes sense of the perversion but also provides the solution. So Lord, help us to share that gospel well by having a clear vision of what you've called us to do first and foremost as the bride of Christ. And then from there, We have freedom to love and serve you and to be satisfied, single, married, or dating. We pray this in your name. Amen.